through their music. Out of the Box with Joey Watson on FBI 94.5. Hello, FBI radio listener Joey Watson here on your radio, streaming online and at your convenience on your podcast app. This is Out of the Box. On this program, I get to chew the fat with one guest each week and roll through the stories and records that have defined them in their life. Today, I'm sitting down with Ray Arn. He played bass in one of Australia's thumping 80s pub rock bands, the controversially titled Hard-Ons. And while Ray is still touring these days, he acts as a chronicler of the wild Australian pub rock scene of the 1980s through his blog. And of course, his writing is full of stories about his own band, which became one of the defining internationally supported groups of the genre. On a headline tour later this year, and in 2017, the author of the book, The Art of Rayanne, What I Did During My School Holidays Today. Get your nostalgia hats on. Ray, a warm welcome to Out of the Box. Hi, Joey. How's it going? <laughs> Very well. Thank you so much for coming in. Um, Ray, about 30 years of the hard-ons would mean about 30 years of being interviewed for your music. Is the... Is the music media something you love or is it a blessing or a curse? No, I quite enjoy it. Um, it, it it's, it's um, yeah, it's a curse. It's horrible. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's something we had to do, um, but it's also 35 years, not 30 years. 35. Yeah, yes. Is it something you get better at over the years? No, I get worse. <laughs> In what sense? Well, because now that the social media, you have to really watch what you say. Because it just gets out there, and then what happens is it starts snowballing. It gets worse and worse and worse. And by the time uh, the 800th person reblogs it, uh, the story is way worse. Sure. Yeah. How, how has social media affected the way that you promote yourself as the hard-ons? I mean, uh, being in a band that's gone from the pre-internet to the post-internet era and having to adapt to that, has that been tricky? Uh, yes, it, it, it has been tricky because we're all in our 50s, except Murray, our drummer, he's in his 40s. Um, so it's something that uh, we're probably a lot um, clunky at. Um, I didn't know that I had an Instagram account, for example. <laughs> and people are saying, you've got no followers. Um, oh, no, you, you don't follow anyone, but you've got like 900 followers, but you don't have anything up there. I go... What are you talking about? Your Instagram account. I don't have an Instagram account. Yes, you do. Check it out. I didn't know. I must have created it somehow through Facebook or something. See, 23-year-olds probably don't do that kind of stuff. 900 yeah. very loyal followers yeah. then. Um, Ray, paint a picture of Punchbowl in the 1970s. This is where you grew up. Yeah. Um, well, it's it was uh, uh, always been a working-class suburb. Um, but um, for, for me, it was heaven. It was home and it was heaven. It was like such a great place to grow up because I, I still have my friends from there that I grew up with. Um, it was quite multiracial. Um, but I think now it's a lot more um, um, heavily skewed towards uh, an Arabic population. Uh, it, it had always been a place where a lot of Arabic um, people lived, um, but now more so than ever, so I think. So your family was Korean. Your parents had migrated from Korea. Was yeah. there a Korean community in Punchbowl? No, no. Uh, in 19, we, we came here in 1974 uh, in October. and uh, What was the reason? My father uh, was a pilot, 
and uh, he got a job here as a pilot. There was a shortage of um, pilots in Australia for some reason, and uh, a lot of Australia uh, Korean pilots got headhunted to come to Australia. So um, all the other Koreans that we knew um, were families of pilots, um, and they were all from the military. So the f- the first wave of Korean immigrants um, into Australia were military personnel, people who had special skills. Uh, you know, one of them being um, learn knowing how to fly. Yeah. Was that isolating being um, part of a kind of lone Korean family without uh, much of a network or a community? Did you feel that when you uh, were growing up? Yeah, yeah, definitely because um, I remember um, walking around uh, um, a shopping centre in Bankstown when we first moved to Punchbowl and uh, my dad and my mother, they were talking and then all of a sudden this lady just ran up and started screaming at them um, saying, speaking in Korean and, and she was so happy to see my mum and dad and she was another Korean. See, it was so unusual to see another Korean in Australia at the time that Koreans would bump into each other and go, tell us your story, where are you from, and that kind of stuff. And this lady, um, Mrs. Casey, um, we still know her to this day. And in fact, um, she lives um, a block around the corner from me right now. And uh, we still know her. She's in the 90s now. Yeah, and that was 1975 when we met her. And she's still our friend. And she she came to Australia because she met um, an Australian man and she got married and she came here for marriage. Yeah, so that, that's how that's to give you an idea of um, how few Koreans there were at the time. Yeah. Punchbowl Boys is becoming a bit of a theme on this program. Punchbowl Boys Boys High School, that is. Uh, we had Michael Muhammad Ahmed on uh, just two episodes ago, uh, whose whose book, The Lebs, Miles Franklin shortlisted book, chronicles his time at, um, uh, in a fictional way, his time at um, Punchbowl Boys. You were also at Punchbowl Boys High uh, about a decade or so earlier than Michael. Um, what, what was your experience of Punchbowl Boys? Well, I really, um, obviously, I really enjoyed going to school with my friends, but um, you don't know how tough it is on, because you don't have anything to um, compare it against. The only time I'd noticed that um, our school was maybe a little bit underprivileged was um, uh, when we used to play rugby against um, uh, Hurlston Agricultural School. Uh, because you know, obviously, um, that that's obviously a far better school in terms of um, resources and things like that. And we went to their football field and went, look, look at the size of their rugby field here. You know, <laughs> look at the facilities and went, oh, this is a better school. So I, I I learned that when I went there to play rugby. But besides that, um, because you're not comparing your life situation with other people because you're you're too busy living you don't think that you're in a horrible place but then um you go on school excursions and uh you end up um uh meeting people from port hacking high school for example you go, oh, okay we've got different lives here 
You know, it doesn't mean that we don't like our lives. It just means that it's different. And uh, it's not until you turn 18, 19, you go to university, you realize, you know, going to Punchbowl Boys High School really enriched my life. And it, it was very helpful in becoming who I am. Uh, a lot of people would say that um, it was an underprivileged school, and it is, but, uh, but it... I just can't take it back because there's no point in, you know, wishing that, oh, geez, I wish I went to um, Sydney Grammar. I don't feel like that at all, you know? Where did your taste in music come from? Were you able to develop a music collection of your own when you were little? Uh, yeah, because my next-door neighbour, Ian, Ian Taylor, who, who I've um, got in touch with through Facebook recently, uh, he, he went to my school. So when I was in primary school at Lakemba, uh, Ian was in high school uh, at Punchbowl Boys High School. And when I was in um, year seven at Punchbowl, he was in year 12. So that's like a five-year age difference. And uh, so he was this kid who was five years older than me. And uh, in the mid-70s, he had... Um, a pretty big record collection for, for a kid of his age. And he had David Bowie, Skyhawks, Le Zeppelin, Kiss, Deep Purple, um, you know, all the hard rock stuff. He he liked a band called The Sweet. Um, when the Sex Pistols released uh, God Save the Queen 7-inch, he bought that and played it and didn't like it and gave it to me. And so it was through him. That, yeah. Tell me about that, that the, the outbreak or advent of punk music. That, that would have happened, what, when you were about... 12 years old yeah 1977 um well the the uh the subculture that my mum used to know about um was the hippies and she'd always say someone was into uh, underground music or just hard rock in general she'd say hippie you know and then and it just be the whole idea of you know the long-haired guy with the bell bottoms just became really redundant pretty quick and people started wearing um you know, straight leg jeans and, you know, little things like that. You, you, um, the haircut would become different and all that kind of stuff. So, um, but, I mean, when you're... <clears throat> I mean, I, I, my friend Tim, he was, you know, getting a, a a punk rock haircut when he was like 13 or 14. It wasn't like that for me at all, you know. It was, for me, um, being stuck in, like, the, a suburb like Punchbowl, for me it was... Uh, it was just another strain of music. It wasn't any social movement. I, I couldn't see it. I was too young to see it. So, um, and punk only really lasted, what, a year or something from what I know um, before I could even discover bands like, um, you know, The Saints or Radio Birdman. We were already on to Devo and B-52s and XTC. Those bands were already, um, you know, the post-punk, thing had already happened punk only happened for a really short time but i mean it was a catalyst for worldwide musical change obviously our uh first track couldn't be any more heavier contrast <laughs> to uh the the sex pistols or any of the punk bands yeah. that you mentioned why are we playing abba off the top um well they they were huge when i was a little kid and uh i mean we 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 just migrated to australia and uh Mamma Mia by ABBA just seemed like um, such a happy song. I mean, you know, most people who are immigrants um, go to another country 
with the hope of um, betterment, you know, um, for a better life. Abba, goodness me, on your FBI radio. That was Mamma Mia, brought in by bassist of the foundational Australian pub rock band, The Hard-Ons. Uh, Ray Ahn, today, we're touring through the wild world of the Australian punk scene. Ray, uh, why did you count yourself as a musician in high school? What drove you to join a band? Oh, just because I like music. No other reason. Um, I think a big catalyst was, you know, the advent of punk music. Um, it's really difficult to listen to things like King Crimson and Led Zeppelin and even Deep Purple and think that like a 15-year-old kid's ever going to be able to play, you know, I mean, if you're a 15-year-old kid, you can't listen to Tarkas by Emerson, Lake and Palmer and go, well, I'll just 
form a band that sounds like that you know it, it just sounds too involved and too difficult but when you hear um a ramones record you think you could give it a go and give it a good shake i love that punk yeah. is for everyone three chords yes. in a garage yes this is a lot a lot more difficult than it sounds but um you don't really need um too much training to get started so just to get started is like a, a stroll in the park why, why bass guitar uh, it was just because um, there was an. I, I saw an opening. Um, I, I did have uh, an acoustic guitar that I would borrow off one of the neighbors and try and make sense of playing chords and stuff like that. And I took a couple of guitar lessons and that kind of stuff. But um, everyone in my school that wanted to form a band was playing um, uh, guitar. Everyone. So absolutely nobody was walking around saying look i just want to be a bass guitar player you know it's not the type of thing that um well back in 1980 it wasn't something that kids were aspiring to be a bass player it was it's underrated but um yeah and probably rightly so but uh yeah people weren't walking around going i want to play bass in the band where where was the australian pub rock scene in the 80s Where, where was it at and where was it going kind of thing uh, well, it it was like you could um, certainly uh, play four or five nights a week. Uh, we were doing um, two nights a week sometimes. And um, when we would watch bands, we would have um, uh, big groups of us going to one pub watching uh, a, a show there and then traveling all the way up to the city and going to maybe the Trade Union Club um, and catching a a concert that would start at one o'clock in the morning, for example. So the trade union club would have three levels. Uh, each level would have a concert going and, you know, everyone would be kicked out at six o'clock, but there'd be music going. Uh, I mean, I remember seeing X, uh, the legendary punk band X. I saw, I remember seeing them come on stage at three o'clock in the morning, for example. So, and then you could go to the Mansell Room in King's Cross and that would be, you know, like the headliner, um, would turn up at two o'clock or whatever. I, I remember seeing the screaming tribesmen at the Mansell room at two o'clock in the morning. You know. So, did you um, have any time for school amongst that? Um, well, yeah, I, I kicked ass at school. You know, did really well at HSC. How, uh, how did you balance it? I, some people are talented at it. You know? It's good. Yeah. <laughs> so, what four nights a week on the road playing RSLs, and then you turn oh, no. around for school the next day? No, no. Um, when I was in high school. Uh, we didn't play any pub shows at all. We were playing um, church halls and uh, uh, council halls, scout halls, um, birthday parties, you know, people's backyards and that kind of stuff. We did a lot of those. But um, it's it's one thing to sneak into a pub to watch a band and then it's another to um, be on stage and uh, play underage uh, because none of our parents were going to turn up and be our uh, chaperones or anything like that. And... Uh, our first gig uh, at a pub was when the youngest member of the Hard-Ons, uh, Blackie, uh, he was one year younger than everyone else. So when he turned 18, uh, which was, ni- he turned 18 in um, 1984, that was when we could play our first pub gig. So we, we w- had kind of had to wait till he turned 18 before we played our first pub gig, which we did at the Vulcan uh, in 1984. 
uh, now we've got the Skyhooks and classic yeah. Australian rock. Um, where do they fit in with the dawn of the hard-ons, Ray? Well, to, to me, um, they represent um, uh, a band that was hugely popular and playing everywhere in, in Australia at the time. Um, to me, they represented um, Australian 70s rock music because they sung um, about Australia in Australian accents. So I found that really uh, relevant. And at the time, I found it kind of um, normal. And um, uh, I thought that was... um, I thought that was what uh, what bands did in Australia, sing in Australian accents about Australia because I was so popular. I thought that was like a regular template. And uh, it wasn't until later that I realised um, Australian bands um, weren't necessarily singing in Australian accents. But we took um, a huge template about singing about our own locale uh, in our own accent. So we took that from... Uh, the Skyhooks and it was and that was I guess retrospectively that was pretty important for us because uh, we were made up of uh, immigrant kids so singing about um, our own locale was a big thing for us I think
very happy happy to throttle the skyhooks into your ears on FBI Radio. This is Out of the Box, and I am chatting with the bassist of foundational Australian pub rock group Hard-Ons, Ray Ahn. Ray, did you uh, come into any controversy when you were on the road? Um, yeah, like, lo- lots and lots, but um, that's we kind of asked for it. So How so? Know. Well, we called the band the Hard-Ons, and, and that, <laughs> back in 1980. When we formed the band, we were called. Um, when when I joined the band, they were already called the Dead Rats, and they had um, a, a different bass player. But he he wasn't really into punk and new wave and that kind of stuff. He was more into like uh, I remember him saying how much he loved Janis Joplin and Hendrix and stuff like that, which we love. But um, the band had this focus, this punk focus, and he was. Um, less into punk than um, the other two guys in the Dead Rats. So I, um, they asked him to leave to, to get me in, and I, I couldn't really play bass at the time. That's why I went and got a bass, because I thought if I, if I hang around the band, um, they'll get me to join, um, based on purely on ideology, not on playing ability. And... Um, uh, we when when I joined the band, they changed the name to the plebs. Plebs meaning um, plebeian, um, uh, the lower classes, somebody who's not um, very wealthy, that kind of stuff. Um, so, an attempted antisocial uh, uh, a band name. Did Did you get much blowback for it? Plebs. Oh no, for hard. Oh, oh, oh yeah, 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 totally. To it, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, because we formed we called the band the Hard Ons at the end of uh, around October 1982 and we played um, a school hall a, a church hall in Punchbowl with the name and I remember people saying you're crazy having a name like that it's like why you'll never get booked it's like well we'll see how this pans out eh? you know we'll just we'll just give it a go what do we got to lose we don't have anything to lose what, what can a bunch of you know, young teenagers in high school, you know, hope to lose by taking a big risk like that, you know, at the time. So there, there was nothing to lose at all. So the only thing that was going to come out of it was, you know, people talking about the band's name and stuff like that. So he gave us um tremendous amount of um uh publicity from the get-go, you know. Were you a drug-fueled band? No. Um, when I first met uh, Kesh and Blackie, the other two guys... They were heavily involved in school sport. Um, Blackie was into... Um, Blackie used to go um, uh, cross-country running with his father. They were, he was in, involved with a, a local club. Uh, Kesh was a really good cricket player, and he also used to play um, uh, rugby league for Greenacre Grasshoppers um, back when he was a kid. Um, so we were like, you know, we were pretty heavily into sport. I played a lot of um, sport at school as well you know not huge amounts but you know um enough to you know i'm a lifelong rugby league supporter uh, i love cricket um we did a lot of sport together when we were growing up for example um yeah it, it, it's it, it's you know it's not something drugs was something that um uh none of us really got into um because we, we were still living with our parents uh in the suburbs and um, 
I guess we that's what we were, we were suburban kids into sport and, and music and the that, love of mum and the love of sport was enough to yeah. keep keep you off it. But it wasn't until later that we found out that we were in the minority. It was like everyone was heavily involved with um illicit drugs and alcohol. But uh I mean Blackie in the hard ones doesn't even drink anymore, you know? So yeah, it's something that we never got involved with. Tell me about the Brizzy radio station for Triple Z, who you, you basically went to war with. I, I don't know if we went to war with with them, or but someone yeah. waged war some, somewhere. Well, I I think it's something that we asked for. You know, we 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 went out of our way to kind of make sure that um, uh, we caused a bit of a stir because it was going to be, um, you know, we just thought we'd cause kind of ideological stirs and upset people and see how that panned out. Um, you know, there was this fear that the band was really good, but it would be overshadowed by um, maybe smut and controversy. But we didn't see it that way. We, we thought, hey, it'll just help us get a few extra gigs here and there. People will talk about us and that kind of stuff. And it would upset people. And if people get upset, you know, it's kind of good. Isn't that what art's supposed to do, you know, prov- provoke people and get people upset. So what was the complaint of 4 Triple Z? What, what, <coughs> what was their concern? Well, um, back then there was a, a – the premier was Joe Bioke Peterson. Do you, do you know that guy? Sure. This is the um, famously uh, right-wing uh, LNP leader of Queensland. Yeah, but he wasn't just right-wing. He was also corrupt and uh, – you know, he made life very difficult for um, people who, well, for Triple Z Radio, for example, um, they would have had a hell of a time trying to survive in that climate, and they would have been fueled by the need to um, be um, a voice against right-wing forces. So they would, they would be, uh, they would have. Um, hair trigger emotional outrage responses um, ingrained into them because of the existence of a far right wing government where they lived and I can totally understand it you know um, so this hair trigger response to a band like the Hard-Ons the name the Hard-Ons you know um, I, I could fully understand it I mean uh, Joe Bjorke Peterson sent his goons to um, raid Rocking Horse Records and get rid of, um, you know, confiscate Dead Kennedy's records and Hard-On's records because of um, uh, this, this sheer, <laughs> sheer bloody-mindedness of uh, keeping um, moral decency in, in Queensland. So what did they insane. accuse you of? They accused us of being uh, sexist and racist. I don't know where they got racist from, but, you know, we were getting people writing to us saying that um, um, you got to come to Queensland and play. Um, tr- tr- you know, four triple Z are talking about you guys all the time as being a racist and sexist band. You know, you, you know, you'd have so much publicity. The first time we went up there, we had 500 people, you know. Um, uh, they, 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 so... Um, you know, our answer was yeah. They they were they were only half right. You know, um, you know, 
we were racist. We weren't sexist. We were, we were definitely racist. You know, uh, but the they, argument being that you you could afford to be because you were made up of four um, first generation immigrants. Yeah, sort of. Yeah, they, but they they didn't even know what we looked like. If they saw our skin color, then they would think, "Oh, these guys are um, these guys are being ironic here," you know. But um, but look, the first gig we did in uh, Brisbane was at East Leagues Club. They announced on Four Triple Z that our gig was cancelled, so they tried to sabotage our show. So what we did, we told a guy doing the door that if anyone was saying that they were Four Triple Z members, um, because you know back then you, you said oh, I'm a Four triple z member they got a discount at the door of the local concerts um tell them if they're four triple z members that they have to pay an extra dollar and so we got all this extra money (laughs) (laughs) Uh, what can we play now ray what can we play to the uh, kind of combative years of the of the hard-ons in Uh, that era well uh according to my um piece of paper here it says don't fear the reaper by uh the blue oyster cult and why why are we playing this one? Uh well, they were um uh Blue Oyster Cult are one of my all-time favorite bands. And um they were an uh, an all-time favorite band of um uh our all-time um uh roadie um and friend Andrew Gillies. He passed away uh in January last year, but we'd known each other since um the early 80s and he started working with the hard-ons, um, you know, when we were all in our, um, you know, mid-20s and stuff, early 20s. So we'd known him for a long, long time. He he was probably, you know, he's like one of my all-time best friends and um, um, he was buried last year. Well, actually, he was cremated last year. And uh, um, the manager, all, the ex-manager of the hard-ons and two members of the hard-ons were... Um, were uh, uh, poor bearers, you know, and we had to um, speak at his funeral and stuff like that. It was um, something that was um, far out, pretty hard to deal with because he was uh, only two years older than me. Uh, so he, he'd be 56 this year. So he wasn't an old guy, but um, he unfortunately died, and uh, this was one of his favourite bands, um, the Bull Oyster Cult. And uh, in 1983, no, was that 80? No, 93, sorry. In 93, the Hard-Ons were on the verge of breaking up and were in Europe. And it was, a, it was a, we went to uh, the USA for two months, and then we went to Europe for two months. So we were away from home for four months, and we were all kind of like, oh, um, we need a break from it. But I really thought we were going to break up at that point, and we did. Um, but at, right at the end of the tour, the Bullworcester Cult were playing in in Frankfurt, where we were the the, the last concert um, that the Hardons did was in Frankfurt, and they were going to be there uh, three days later. So uh, we kind of, you know, some of the members of the Hardons decided to um, stick around in Frankfurt and watch the Bullworcester Cult. And uh, we got to meet the guitar player and stuff like that. And uh, uh, Andrew, uh, Andrew Gillies, he was uh, at the Blue Oyster Cult concert that year on that same tour, but he was in um, in another town. He was in uh, he was actually in um, Arken, um, 
um, up northwest of Germany. He said he cried because he was so happy to see them, you know. And um, I told him uh, when I saw them in Frankfurt, I cried too, you know. I was so happy to see them. So they're, they're, they're our all-time favorite band. Oyster Cult and Don't Fear the Reaper, a connection to the roaring history of Sydney band The Hard-Ons. Their bassist is a chronicler of all um, of all that went on on his blog. Ray Arn is also <laughs> my guest on Out of the Box. Ray, if, if you don't mind me cha- changing the pace a little, can, can we talk a bit about the onset of your dad's dementia? What, yeah, what, sure. what happened in the beginning? Um, well, I noticed that he was acting a bit funny... Um, I guess it was like 2003 or 2004. Um, my mother offered to swing by my apartment uh, and uh, take me to the airport because I was going on tour with the Hardons. And uh, he started driving completely the opposite direction to the airport and then I realised there's something wrong with him and my mum said he's been... a acting a bit funny here and there and then um he I, I remember him being more and more withdrawn and so uh i didn't know at the time but that was probably the onset of dementia you know um as you know a, a pretty horrible disease and uh funny thing is I, I i for some reason i bumped into my old family doctor dr sue at uh punch bowl there 
and uh, he he said your your dad's suffering from uh, depression. He came and saw me. He's suffering from depression. And, I, and the first thing I thought was, "Holy hell, mate! You should you be saying this about my father? Isn't it like um, there's some kind of a patient and doctor privilege of secrecy or whatever?" But I th- and I went and said to my mum, "Hey, is, is dad okay?" He's like, "Well, yeah, he's acting a little bit funny, but yeah, he's he's really happy. He's he's fine." And um, but it's like a, a a slow car crash, you know. It's a total disaster, but it happens really slowly, if you know what I mean. And uh, uh, he got his license taken off him um, in, uh, I think it was 2000 and, might have been 2007 or something. How did you go about eventually making the decision to move him into a nursing home? Uh, When, okay, what happened was um, my wife and I bought a house with our daughter because our daughter was quite young and we were going to plan to have more kids. So we thought we can't live in a a tiny little apartment in Chippendale or anything like that. We've got to move to the suburbs and get something with a big yard. It'll be really good for the kids. And um, uh, to come up with a deposit was going to be a bit of a pain in the neck. So um, I said to my mum, I said, how are you going living at uh, Punchbowl over there? And she's like, oh, it's not good, you know, because it's far from all the services, like supermarkets and stuff. Dad doesn't drive. I don't like driving anymore. Um, and they don't have a lift. They're living on the third floor. Dad's a bit frail. You know, I don't think I want him walking up and down the stairs, three flights of stairs, you know, and we feel a bit isolated. And I said... You sell your apartment, you sell your apartment, swing us a bit of money from the apartment sale, I'll put it towards a deposit um, for a big house, Uh, you can come and live with my family, you know. So they did, and uh, the whole idea was that if we all lived together, and my wife, she's really good about it, you know, know, um, we could all look after each other kind of thing, you know. We bought a house right next to all the uh, amenities like um, supermarkets, doctors, chemists, um, banks, all that kind of stuff. It's only a little walk rather than, you know, one kilometre bus ride or uh, whatever, you know. So we bought a convenient place. And um, uh, I was helping my mum with my dad. Um, and my mum was helping uh, my wife and I with raising our little daughter who at the time was uh, just one, you know, like a little kid and uh, it got too hard to look after my dad it it was obvious that um, uh, a nursing home was the only place that he belonged to He, he couldn't, you can't, you can't wake up at three in the morning and uh, and do all the things that you you have to do to somebody who's uh, it's it's a little bit um, yeah it's a little bit um, um, I guess personal to say but you know I don't want to be waking up at three in the morning and seeing my you know seeing my mum 
changed my dad's adult diaper, you know, at, at three in the morning um, and that kind of stuff. Because uh, what happens is you get you get so tired of looking after a fully-fledged adult who is no longer there mentally. Uh, so um, you just the fatigue just overtakes your life. And that's what happened with my mother. Uh, I mean, I was fatigued, but my mother was doing bulk of the work, you know. Uh, so um, uh, one one night she, f- she f- you know, a couple of nights she was too fatigued to look after my dad and I was too fatigued. And in, in any case, you know, you don't set the alarm. You don't set the alarm to wake up at four in the morning to change the bed sheets because someone's had a adult diaper explosion, you know what I mean? So, um, so he got this infection, my dad got this infection, uh, dye infection, you know, um, and he was, his um, blood pressure had shot up to 160 or so, he, he was going to die, and they, we took him to the hospital, um, and the infection, this E. coli infection was most likely from having a, a dirty adult diaper, you know. This infection had travelled through his bloodstream. And so he he had edema, you know, the water in the lungs. He had two heart attacks. Uh, and uh, I don't even know how doctors worked this out, but we had, um, you know, a blood specialist, a heart specialist, and a lung specialist, all, all three of them, talking amongst themselves over my dad and um, he was in there for a, a month at this hospital and and uh, I don't even know how they worked this out but uh, one of the doctors said I give your dad 60% chance of survival well how do you how do you work out where, where did you get this mathematics from 60% and he kind of explained but it was a you know it just all went over my head and uh, the next day, I give your dad 40% chance of survival. And then this turned out to be 20%. You're, we think your dad's going to die. So they said to my mum and myself, um, we would like to be given permission to not revive your dad uh, next time something really bad happens. We think uh, we would like your permission to let him go. And before the doctor could even uh, finish the sentence, both me and my mum were screaming, yes. Yeah, you got the permission. Let him go. You know, you know, life is one thing and quality of life is another, right? So we thought he was going to die. But then he made this recovery over the next month and um, the same doctor said, your dad's getting much better. You know, we're quite uh, shocked. And I said, well, he was in the military for all those, all those times. He was a lieutenant colonel in the air force you know so he 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 kind of maybe he's got this idea of survival drummed into him you know and he said well it's pretty remarkable your dad's gonna live but when he does recover uh his dementia will probably get worse i go well it's getting worse anyway right so he came home and his dementia did get worse and uh not long after, it was obvious that we couldn't 
you know, the family couldn't look after him uh, 24 hours a day. It, we're just gonna, it was just going to be too hard. So you needed a team of um, people looking after him 24 hours a day. And, it, it, and it's, not a, it's not a hard decision to make because um, uh, have you had your parents or your grandparents go to a nursing home? No, not to speak of, no. Um, you will find that it's a very easy decision when it does happen. Very easy. It's, uh, you don't have a choice, you know. And people go, oh, it's heartbreaking, you know. It is heartbreaking. But it's been years and years and years of um, heartbreak through dementia. It's a slow burn uh, heartbreak. It's a slow car crash. It's a horrible disease, Joey. What what can we play now in tribute to your dad's better years? What what can we play for earlier times? Uh, it's Freedom of Choice by Devo. Uh, they're one of my all-time favorite bands. Um, and um, can I tell you why I picked this song? Please. Um, my father uh, has always been a role model for me. You know, well, he was in the military, so he was a, you know, in the old world speak, he was a man's man. You, you know what I mean? And, uh, you know, that kind of stuff is uh, kind of frowned upon because people associate that masculinity with toxic masculinity, you know. But uh, my father was a, you know, he was a man's man. You know, he was in the military and uh, he, he was a hard, hard, hard man. He wasn't very emotional with me and my brother, you know. He never hugged us or anything like that. Um, uh, he he didn't show too much love, but he was uh, someone that we really liked because, well, he had his act together in everything, you know. So, and that's that's pretty important for young young kids when they're growing up. You know, their parents to have their act together, that they have a measured life and they know what they're doing in life, and. Uh, my mother got uh, diagnosed with a brain tumour in 1980 and uh, he had to become a sole parent and, uh, you know, my father wasn't a very good cook so he couldn't take us to a restaurant every night so he, you know, he started learning to cook and he wasn't very good but he, 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 uh, he overused the condiments, for example, you know. He didn't know subtlety so everything was just a little bit too... Um, salty and stuff like that but he had a go and then to um uh, uh distract me and my brother he took us to the local uh record bar at bankstown and he said you guys pick a record each and uh, i picked uh, a freedom of choice by devo um the album and uh because that record had just come out because uh, you know the, the film clip freedom of choice with the skateboard writers and stuff um that was on tv all the time so i remember the song and the record had just come out and so I was obsessed with that record because my friends had it and I was really jealous. So I said to my dad, this record just came out and this is the one that I really want. So I bought it and uh, it still reminds me of my dad.
That was Devo, Freedom of Choice, on your FBI radio and out of the box for a couple of moments longer. I'm uh, sitting down with Rayan, the uh, bassist from the Hard-Ons and chronicler of much that went on in the 1980s and 90s in the Australian pub rock scene. Ray, do you you feel sorry for people that are making music in Australia today? Do you hark back to the old days and and kind of wish that it was still like it was in the 80s and 90s no no i mean you can you can say that uh it was easier to form a band back then right but then look at recording for example you know me and you if we formed the band tomorrow joey we can go and record an album for 50 bucks if you really want to you know Look at the Avalanches, right? They recorded their, you know, triple platinum selling record or whatever for $2,000, right? So everything's much easier, much uh, way cheaper. We want to get our record mastered. We just email somebody, right? We just email the files over, don't we? So there are a lot of things that are much easier about playing in a band. Do people throw glass at you while you're playing now, Joey? They don't. I got glass smashed over my face when I was playing when I was a kid. You know, those things don't happen anymore. And the funny thing is, I don't remember the pain on my forehead. I remember the blood. I remember the the warm blood pouring down my face, but I don't feel the pain in my head because the smashed glass was on the fretboard of my bass guitar. So I remember the pain on my fingertips, but I don't feel the pain, never felt the pain on my head. You know, and and it's probably because um, the the... The skin on your fingertips is, you know, that's way more sensitive than the skin on your forehead, right? Um, so things are, you know, people have got it easy as well, you know? And now with social media, people have cause to actually have a whinge if they don't think something's right. Do you think that people are right in having something to whinge about? I mean, absolutely. There's a huge concern, I huge, think, particularly amongst the FBI radio listenership, and it's become a political priority for many. That yeah. Sydney's li- night life, for instance, is yeah. not what it used to be, or not living up to the expectations of some people. And I don't know how, what I think about that, but is that something that you reflect upon? No, I'm 54. I'm worried about my two kids, and and I don't have enough brain power to worry about other things. What about you as a musician, though? Again, I'm 54. If if my music fails, it fails, you know. But it's not my job. It's a hobby, you know. Um, it's like stamp collecting, you know. I, I could have the world's greatest stamp collection, or I could not, you know. It's I'm putting stamps in my album. It's just a it's just a hobby, Joey. I, I go out there. I play in front of 15 people one night. I play in front of, well, in the case of that festival we did last year, 50,000 people. Uh, it doesn't matter. All I can care about right now is, is my band good or not? Uh, beyond that, there are other people who have the energy and drive to work out things like, do we have enough venues? Are the laws right? You know, um, we'll have to do our own bit. My role is to play in a band that is as good as possible without compromising my ideals as a musician purely musical but at the same time if somebody says listen we're raising money 
to save this one particular venue? Would you play for free? Then I would say, well, who else is not getting paid? Okay, the person collecting the door, the people pouring the beer, uh, beers, the security, they're all volunteering. Okay, count us in. We'll be the first people to go and do it. And we've done that before, you know? But to worry about other things, yes, I do worry about it, but I, there are so many more people who uh, are in a better position than me to deal with this stuff. An instructional note for any musicians listening out there uh, today. Ray, what can we, uh, can we play to finish this episode of Out of the Box? What do you want to play out with? Um, I want to play a song called uh, Television Addict by The Victims. What's this one? Well, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of music, and The Victims were a favourite band when I was at uh, in high school. And then years later, I became friends with James and and Dave from the Who the Gurus, who were in this band. And I told James and Dave, "Hey, listen, you know, I love The Victims as well. You know, your first band in Perth." And I used to have, here's a photograph of me when I was 15 wearing a Victims T-shirt. And they thought, "Oh, you really are a fan." I go, "Well, yeah." You know, I had the record when I was a kid. I still got it. And I, I made a T-shirt of your band and that kind of stuff. And then, you know, you know, we remained f- friends for a long, long time. As most musicians in, in Australia, they become friends, you know. And um, uh, years later, they wanted to reform the band. So they asked me to play bass for them. So with that tribute to Australian music, I don't think you can get a better one than that. Uh, I'd like to, of course, thank my producers enormously. Thank you so much to... Uh, and Nicole DiPaolo and Bree Jones who did all the research for this particular episode and uh, Ray Ahn thank you so much for being my guest on Out in the Box today read the news the other day about a boy they threw away it went out and shot someone like some contact teleplay he claimed he was confused between fact and fantasy it seems he's been Anything. That's more effort than
This podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts.